welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, an update on the mistreatment of and deportation of thousands of Haitians by the Biden administration. But what conditions do deportees face upon returning to Haiti? Is there any credibility to the Biden administration's claim via Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas that Haiti is able to handle thousands of deported Haitians? Here to discuss the reality of the situation on the ground in Haiti is Pierre Boissier, a co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee. He hails from Lakai, the south of Haiti, that was recently hit by a devastating earthquake. And on Saturday, September 18th, the sixth summit of heads of state and government of the community of Latin America and Caribbean states, known as CELAC, was held in Mexico City. Some historic announcements were made at the conference. We find out what took place, what came out of the summit, and the wider implications for the whole of the Americas from Mexico City-based journalist Laura Carlson. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. The U.S. has moved a step closer to offering booster doses of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine to seniors and others at high risk from the virus. The Food and Drug Administration signed off on boosters as a way to shore up protection in people with underlying health conditions and high-risk jobs. Now the decision shifts to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It will have to decide who should get boosters and when. A panel of advisors to the agency is weighing that issue in a two-day meeting, which ends today. President Biden is promising to donate half a billion doses of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines to low-income countries. The move comes amid complaints that rich nations have hogged the coronavirus vaccine. Christopher Martinez reports. Worldwide, more people have died of COVID-19 after vaccines became available than before. That's largely because vaccine availability has really meant available for rich countries that bought up the supply early, while vaccine donations that low-income countries rely on have lagged far behind goals. So President Joe Biden convened a partly virtual COVID-19 summit, where he promised U.S. support for global vaccination efforts. We're not going to solve this crisis with half measures or middle-of-the-road ambitions. We need to go big, and we need to do our part. Governments, the private sector, civil society, while the new donations are significant, some critics say it's far less than is needed. Most of the promised vaccines will not be delivered until 2022. So far, almost 6 billion vaccine shots have been given worldwide, but the vast majority went to wealthy countries, while low-income countries have vaccination rates as low as 2%. Experts say the world needs about 11 billion vaccine doses. I'm Christopher Martinez. 
The Oakland School Board has voted to require eligible students to be vaccinated against the coronavirus. There will be exemptions for medical and personal reasons. The school superintendent will develop details of the policy. Oakland is the first Northern California school district to adopt a vaccination mandate for students. The Los Angeles Unified School District, which is the nation's second largest, adopted a student vaccination mandate earlier this month. It takes full effect after students return from the year-end winter break. The Biden administration's special envoy to Haiti has resigned, protesting inhumane, large-scale expulsions of Haitian migrants to their homeland, racked by civil strife and natural disaster. Daniel Foote was appointed to the position in July following the assassination of Haiti's president. His letter of resignation said in part, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti, a country where American officials are confined to secure compounds because of the danger posed by armed gangs to daily life. The Congressional Black Caucus is calling on the Biden administration to end the Trump policy that expels migrants without a full asylum hearing. After video went viral of Border Patrol agents on horseback and chaps whipping Haitians trying to cross the Rio Grande to a migrant camp in Texas. Los Angeles Representative Maxine Waters. What the hell are we doing here? What we witness takes us back hundreds of years. What we witnessed was worse than what we witnessed in slavery. Cowboys with their reins again whipping black people, Haitians, into the water. Senate negotiators say bipartisan congressional talks on overhauling policing practices have ended without agreement. New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker said bargainers were not making progress on issues like whether to hold individual officers personally liable for abusive behavior. The hard-fought effort to win federal policing standards began after the massive protests following last year's police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. California will become the first state to bar mega retailers from firing warehouse workers who can't keep up with abusive quotas that interfere with bathroom and rest breaks. Governor Gavin Newsom signed the legislation, which was spurred by working conditions at Amazon warehouses. Melvin Van Peebles, a Broadway playwright, musician and movie director, has died at the age of 89. Van Peebles was sometimes called the godfather of modern black cinema. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. As we heard in our news headlines, the U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti has resigned. Dan Foote said that the U.S. policy to Haiti is deeply flawed and that he will not support inhumane, counterproductive uh, decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees. This is outrage grows among immigrants' rights campaigners as well as some Democrats over the Biden administration policy to deport thousands of Haitians back to a nation rocked by political violence, death squads, a recent earthquake, and political instability, including the recent assassination of the U.S.-backed president of Haiti, Jovenel uh, Moise. By the way, what is often referred to for the most part as gangs, out-of-control gangs in the U.S. media in Haiti, for the most part, 
are really death squads that were backed or put in place by the former um, Haitian government um, that was headed by Jovenel Moïse and with the United States um, basically um, turning a blind eye to this while continuing uh, to put forward that these are just out of control gangs and have nothing with uh, politics. Now, these death squads were uh, made infamous during the brutal dictatorship of the Duvalier regime, Papa Doc and Baby Doc. And guess what? The Duvalieres are back in uh, Haiti now, and the party of Jovenel Moïse, um, really a lot of uh, Duvalieres part of that party. But on the deportations of Haitians from the U.S., the expulsion of Haitians is said to be the largest of asylum seekers in decades. Let us go to a clip now about a protest that took place in Miami yesterday. Now to the border crisis today, thousands of Haitian migrants who have been waiting to be processed on the Texas border are being released into the U.S. are being sent back to Haiti. South Florida's Haitian American community protested today at the immigration offices in Miami. And local tennis reporter Glenna Milberg was there. She's live now with what they're demanding today. Glenna. Calvin, they are demanding an end to those deportations. They are outraged watching the video of those flights taking people back to repatriate them to Haiti, which of course is in crisis as a country right now. And they're also looking for public support. Demands to stop the deportations. They are here in the U.S. already. There's a law for that. Haitian lives matter! For now, it's very, very bad the way they treat us. The border crisis is a local South Florida crisis in this nation's largest Haitian communities. America, this is your litmus test of humanity and empathy. We will get it under control. Despite the Biden administration's sudden and dramatic actions to send a message and discourage more, hundreds are being admitted into the asylum process. Like these young men we met at the San Antonio airport, headed to New York with immigration paperwork. Generally, those with relatives or sponsors, families and pregnant women issued notices to report within 60 days. Hundreds of others have been deported with no due process under Title 42 that allows expulsions in health emergencies like the pandemic. Get them vaccinated and then get them through the process. Harsh images of a border closure crackdown now raise questions of racism. The images of white officers on horseback chasing black men have echoes of the historical injustices suffered by black people in the United States. Those Border Patrol agents who are on those horses, they are on administrative leave tonight. That's according to the White House press secretary today. Meanwhile, the encampment at one point it had almost 15,000 people uh, down to 12 over the weekend. We understand that between the deportations and the people who are being allowed to come to the United States and make asylum claims that that camp is about half empty. They're looking to empty it by week's end. I'm Glenna Milberg, live in Miami today, Local 10 News. A lot of people are watching. Thanks a lot there, Glenna. All righty, and conditions under the bridge where the Haitian asylum seekers are gathered 
uh, is dark, wet, dirty, cramped, hot. Uh, many asylum seekers sleep in tents or just on the ground, surrounded by growing piles of garbage, <laughs> right? And um, the Associated Press is also reported that flights have arrived in Haiti from Sunday to Tuesday. President Biden has been roundly criticized uh, for this policy. Vice President Kamala Harris gave a, a mild rebuke, saying she expressed serious worries about the treatment of Haitian migrants by Border Patrol agents. You may recall that she made a trip south of the border to Latin America, basically telling uh, asylum seekers not to come to the United States. And meanwhile, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas he has doubled down on defending the deportations, claiming that Haiti can handle the thousands of people being sent back. He also claimed that what he described as misinformation is behind the attempts uh, by Haitians to enter the United States. And he also defended the deportation, saying the damage from the recent August earthquake in Haiti had been, quote, rather geographically limited that an analysis of the situation on the ground had determined that country conditions allowed for repatriations. In other words, the deportations of thousands of, of Haitians. But what is the truth to that? And what is really the reality on the ground? I'd like to welcome back to Sojourner Truth, Pierre Leboisier, one of the most respected progressive voices on Haitian politics. Pierre Leboisier has dedicated his entire adult life advocating for the working poor in Haiti. Indeed, he hails from Lakai, the part of Haiti in the South that was very hard hit by the August uh, earthquake. Uh, through the Haiti Action Committee, an organization he co-founded, Pierre Leboisier has tirelessly championed grassroots efforts to improve education, bring about social justice, and develop a stable democracy for the people of his native country. Pierre Leboisier, welcome back. Thank you very much, Margaret. A pleasure to be on the show. And Pierre, just a horrific uh, situation. Actually, before we uh, discuss with you the reality of what the situation is on the ground, uh, despite what um, Homeland uh, uh, Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has said. Um, I just want to discuss a bit this um, uh, the referral to what is going on in Haiti as just gangs that are out of control, because to portray it like that really hides the reality of what uh, the death squads that are back, the death squads that were similar to what went on during the Duvalier era, um, and terrorizing the community, assassinating activists, etc. That's not to say that given the um, intense poverty in Haiti, that there are not uh, people who are just out there basically trying to, you know, make a living, so to speak, uh, with kidnappings, etc. But let's set the record straight on that, because that is a line you hear all over uh, the media, even in alternative media. It's a line that the United States has also has put forward when they know very well there's more to it than just, quote unquote, street gangs out of control. Pierre Lebossier. No, indeed. And uh, what Secretary Mallorca says as echoes for me personally of the 70s 
when um, there was a wave of Haitian refugees, and I want to stress the word refugees, our people, our sisters and brothers were fleeing the country in boats however they could, and not just to the U.S., but to various islands of the Caribbean, to other countries of South America. And at that time, the U.S. government, the State Department, and various branches of the U.S. government were saying that things were normal in Haiti, that everything was well. This was the era of Papa Doc Duvalier and Baby Doc Duvalier, when the Tonton Makuts, the precursors of uh, today's what they call gangs, who were really the death squads, the inheritors of that awful uh, policy that the Duvaliers and allied with the U.S. has been imposing on the people of Haiti. So those are the same, to me, that echoes to that very same terrible, those decades ago, when this was going on. And Haitians were being returned to the hell that the Duvaliers had made, um, had created in Haiti, using the same thing, denying people asylum claims and saying that all was well in Haiti. And these are economic refugees, knowing full well that when you have a dictatorial government in power that has been imposed on a population, that has the power of life and death over individuals, men, women, and children, entire families were dispossessed of their land, dis uh, killed outright. Members of families were killed just because you had a family member who was part of the opposition, just to make a, an example of you, you see, what they call collective punishment. Everyone knew that, yet the U.S. government was sending back Haitians into that inferno. So today, when we are looking at the situation, it's very much exactly what's happening today on the streets of Haiti. Margaret, we had gone to Haiti. We met with the survivors of massacres, uh, you and I. Uh, I believe also, well, definitely, it was a delegation headed by Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and uh, uh, actor and filmmaker Danny Glover was part of it, with uh, attorney Walter Riley and Brian Concanon. And, uh, and we saw we met with the survivors, and they told us what was going on, the complicity of the Haitian police, and how the, pre the imposed president of Haiti, who has, now passed, who has now been assassinated, Jovenel Moïse, how they had set up, and uh, under Martelly as well, his predecessor, how they had set up those so-called gangs who were actually the armed um, death squads of those governments and, and carrying out massive repression in communities that, that support Lavalas, in communities where people are standing up against the miserable living conditions, communities that are demanding services for themselves and their children. They are demanding school, proper, decent school, um, good cleaning water, clean drinking water, um, health care, all the things and jobs they are demanding that services be provided, the services of their tax money. And they were being killed outright, and their homes burned because they were saying, we are human beings, we have rights, and we have to be respected. So the U.S. knows full well the situation. And to be sending plane loads of asylum, of refugees, asylum seekers, denying them even the opportunity to make a case 
and to adjudicate their claims for asylum and look at the situation. It's criminal. On top of that, we've had an earthquake, not only in 2010, which is still because of the money is being stolen and what have you, all the resources. Haiti is in terrible shape. Now we had less than two months ago another awful quake that shook the entire southern peninsula, where I'm from, particularly the city of Lekai. So amidst all of this devastation in the country, to be sending hundreds of people back and stepping up the... And, and we were hit by a hurricane two days later. It, it's criminal. It is criminal. The images are racist. They show exactly what's going on. And you know, Margaret, many times I've heard refugees, um, because I do have done a lot of translation of refugees in the past and continue to do so. I've heard people tell me about things that happen on the high seas when they are caught and the mistreatment that they suffer. But nobody's there with a camera to record it. And so it's only their words which are easily dismissed as exaggerations. But this time, on the border, people caught it on camera. They saw what was going on. And, and, and our brothers and sisters aren't exaggerating. They are telling the truth of the mistreatment of what's going on, the terror that's being inflicted on them, not only in Haiti, but also by people who pretend to be the greatest democracies of the world. This is what's happening. And it reminds me of um, what the police does when there is no camera around. Even when there is camera, we see them killing black people right here in the U.S., in the streets of the cities of the U.S. So uh, this time there was a camera to capture what our brothers and sisters, refugees, are saying, the mistreatment that they frequently encounter from these so-called law enforcement agencies. I would call them terrorist Absolutely. And and a lot of people are clearly drawing the line between um, these, uh, you know, men on horseback, uh, basically whipping uh, Haitians with the uh, days of, of slavery. And we know that there is that continuum of the devaluation of the lives of some of us, some of us. Now, uh, Nana Jumphy, who is the executive director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, she was on the show uh, earlier this week, and she was contrasting what's happening with the Haitian, and I'm glad you're using the word refugees, because people say migrants and that, you know, and Anyway, it's, people get very, very confused about what people are fleeing from and why they're coming to the United States. But she contrasted it with the treatment of um, people coming from Afghanistan. Now, people coming from Afghanistan, of course, should be welcomed, of course, should get support, given the devastation of their country with this 20-year uh, U.S. war. But what has been happening on the ground in Haiti isn't portrayed in that way. But since the Haitian Revolution of 1804, there has been a kind of war uh, that hasn't really been reported against the strugglers for uh, democracy and ensuring that Haiti remains impoverished and that um, Haitian workers can work for next to nothing by U.S. multi-corporations uh, to produce cheap goods uh, for uh, people here in the United States that uh, enjoy that uh, that kind of lifestyle. Uh, so uh, 
Pierre Labossier, it just, I mean, that, that contrast, it seems to me, also makes sense. And additionally, the level of racism anti-black racism that Haitians have faced who had fled uh, to Chile uh, after the first earthquake, uh, other parts of uh, Central and Latin America uh, is just unconscionable. And uh, now this particular situation at the border. Uh, Pierre Boissier, your thoughts? Yes, you know, I'm glad you took it back in historical times and you mentioned the word democracy. Our foremothers and forefathers kidnapped from Africa, enslaved, they were fighting for democracy. They were saying, no, people cannot just take us over and work us to death, uh, depriving us of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's never portrayed that way. So they successfully rebelled and broke the back of this system of slavery. Now, coming forward to 1915, the U.S. invaded Haiti. Following that invasion and the massacre of over 20,000 Haitians, according by chroniclers of the day, people who chronicled a lot of this and wrote about it, this is when, in the aftermath of the U.S., uh, during the U.S. occupation of Haiti uh, from 1915 um, to 1934, and I'll come back to this, that's when the first wave of my, of, of, of flight of refugees started leaving Haiti, and they were being recruited to work in the sugarcane plantations of Cuba at that time before the revolution and the Dominican Republic. Now, it's said that the U.S. left Haiti in 1934, and it's some, but lately I've been thinking more, this has been an American century of domination, of oppression, of repression, and racism in terms of Haiti. Because the U.S., yes, the Marines showed that they left ostensibly in 1934. But when you look at it, it's a continuous occupation or domination, I should say, of Haiti. Because through the Haitian military that the U.S. Marines created, and by the way, those Marines were mostly recruited from the southern states of the U.S. 1915, Woodrow Wilson, Jim Crow. Uh, the terrible years of Jim Crow repression in the South. And so these people created a new Haitian military whose mission it was to continue in the wake of the Marines' departure in 1934 to continue the repression in Haiti. And the Duvaliers and all the governments since then have been imposed on the Haitian people by the United States. The domination has been there. So fast-forwarding to the present, in um, 2004, Haitians for the first time, um, not for the, they, they overthrew the dictatorship I'm talking about in, in the past, in, the recent, in recent times. They overthrew the dictatorship of the Duvalier regime. 2004, we had a popularly, elect, popularly elected government of President Arisid, which for the first time was putting the priorities and the needs of the Haitian people f first and foremost, building schools, building hospitals, uh, providing clean drinking water, support for peasant farmers, supporting local agriculture, all of those things, putting the monies of the, the tax monies of the people to provide services for the people. The U.S. government came in with France and Canada they plotted and led a coup d'etat and carried it out, a kidnapping coup, 
against the people of Haiti, against democracy in Haiti. Since that time, we've had an occupation, which is now going to be 18 years old. That occupation has done nothing but massive repression in Haiti. It has brought uh, terrible, uh, miserable conditions, living conditions for the people of Haiti, and it has resulted in a massive, again, another massive outflow, flight from Haiti of men, women, and children. Their lands are being taken over. We were talking about the um, death squads earlier. This occupation has birthed the death squads of the Duvaliers, which had been gotten rid of by the people's movement. And now this occupation has brought them to the fore and supported dictators, provided them with money, with funds. Let me, let me do this one quote by, um, let me paraphrase this quote by Secretary, UN Secretary General Guterres, who, in talking about Jimmy Cherizier, the man known as Barbecue, notorious, notorious assassin and uh, death squad leader, he heads the Federation of Death Squad. He would be, we could compare him to Roberto Dabrisson, for people who know about uh, El Salvador. He is the same kind of, uh, of a fellow. Well, he has enjoyed, uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated that where this death squad called the G9, that Federation of Death Squads, where they are, the rate of homicide has been reduced as if they are kind of peacemakers, so to speak which is so outrageous. While he was making that statement in o last October 2020, the, this death squad was busy killing residents of Bel Air while that statement was being made. And the Haitian police was busy attacking the university very close to Bel Air, where they killed uh, a student leader, Gregory Saint-Hilaire, and, uh, and other students were fired upon and what have you. So, we have to look at this, the reality on the ground, which is still going on, which is taking place today as we speak. And this is the inferno that the Biden administration is taking, is, is forcibly putting our brothers and sisters, putting them back into. Yes, and, and Pierre, you drew a very, very good line about the role the United States has actually played since the Haitian uh, Revolution up until today, and the conditions on the ground that people are, uh, those who could, are fleeing from and now being returned into. Pierre, we just have a, a, a couple of minutes, but just, uh, you talked about the, the, the violence and the threats, the political instability that people are facing uh, just the day-to-day -day life of, of, of folks, Pierre. Of, uh, we're, we're getting statistics that over 6 million of Haiti's population, 10.4 uh, million or 59% live below the national poverty line. And that's U.S. $2.41 a day. People who are listening, check that out. $2.41 a day. 24% fall below that amount, the national extreme poverty line, and that's U.S. Um, $1.23 uh, per day. Um, also, 50% of the population 
undernourished. One in five Haitian children malnourished. One in 10 Haitian children are acutely uh, malnourished. One in 14 will die before the age of five. I'm getting too upset, Pierre, to just continue uh, pointing this out. But these are the conditions that the Biden, on the ground in Haiti, that the Biden administration is saying it's perfectly reasonable to send thousands of Haitians who have fled these conditions, who are refugees uh, trying to save their lives and give their children uh, some hope back into. Just your final thoughts, uh, Pierre, and also uh, let us know for people who want to find out more about your work, more about the Haiti uh, Action Committee and uh, the work of the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund, what they should do. Thank Pierre Lavoisier. Yes, uh, and I'll be. I'll try to be quick about this. I want to highlight what happens to. I've heard many of the sisters and brothers when they return to Haiti what they have stated. One of the things is that this trip, the misery that was imposed, that is imposed against the people of Haiti, have forced many of them to flee. And how they ended up in Brazil and Chile, it's because they, because of the repression, because of the terrible conditions imposed upon our people by this occupation in Haiti. People, and, uh, and following the earthquake, Brazil, many people sold whatever they had, their possessions. Many went into debt. It cost them 3500 to $4,000 to get to Brazil or Chile. And then from there, right after, where they were needed to work in, in, uh, with low wages, to build um, the Olympic Stadium and other things. So when there was a downturn in the economy, the Haitians were never really secure uh, in Brazil, and they had to they had to leave. And everywhere they they didn't encounter welcome with open arms. So it took them a lot of money to make that crossing from Brazil and Chile, all the way coming to the U.S. border. Now some of them have described how they are the guides are taking all their money, then many times they drop them someplace they don't know. Then they, have, they encounter thieves and people who hijack them, get their money, rape the women. It's horrendous. The whole trip from Brazil and Chile all the way to the border where they encounter God, all kinds of terror, and I know time is short. But then to end up, uh, one of them... Two of them have described how, when they were put on the plane, some of them, their possessions were taken away from them in Texas, and they were put on the plane and dropped into Haiti with nothing, with nothing. They were promised $100, and I heard that from Radio Timon, $100 or 10,000 Haitian goods. The first plane load only got 5,000 goods. And uh, the second, the second, um, on the second day, it was stated that they only got 1,000 goods. And so instead of the 10,000 goods promised, well, all their belongings were taken from them. The conditions that they faced in the Texas jail themselves were horrendous. One of them showed a little plastic sheet. That's all that was given to them and to this particular individual. He said that on, on, on a um, podcast. And they had to, the, the womb was freezing where they put them. And so that same individual said he spent six days without, with the same clothes he had on, all of the clothing he had, everything was taken from him, and uh, didn't brush his teeth, didn't bathe for six days, 
and then was dropped into in Haiti's um, Port-au-Prince airport. So this is, I wanted to bring that out in terms of the mistreatment. In addition to all the weeping and all of that, this is how people are being mistreated by the Biden administration. This is horrific. Yes, and, and absolutely. And Pierre, where can people get information about the Haiti Action Committee? Yes, HaitiSolidarity.net. That's our website. HaitiSolidarity.net um, is the right. website of the Haiti Action Committee. So thank you. I want to thank um, the audience for their support. I want to thank you, Margaret, for your support. We have to keep telling the story. And um, please use the term refugees because our people are refugees and this other mal stuff. And, and I wish every organization that takes a stand at what's going on on the border, please to look at the situation inside Haiti where the masses of our people are rising up trying to change this horrific system that the U.S., France, Canada, and Brazil have been leading this occupation and imposing these miserable, these atrocious conditions of, of against on our people, which is driving, making our people defeated. So, yes, be outraged at what's going on in the border. We must, but we must also carry our outrage as to the policies that the U.S. is imposing on the people inside Haiti that's creating this hell. Absolutely, and a point very, very well made because we can't be outraged about what's happening at the border and not pay attention to the conditions on the ground in Haiti that helped to create uh, that uh, crisis that's happening at the border. Pierre Labossier, thank you so very much for all of your work and dedication and taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thank you, Mom. All righty. All right. Um, we, this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take our station break now and waiting in the wings to speak with us, Laura Carlson about the sixth summit of heads of state and government of the community of Latin America and the Caribbean states, very much connected to the topic that of what's happening here in Haiti. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Don't let me go. Freedom by Pharrell Williams. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org for our community calendar, videos, and much more. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. And uh, we are also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And in our tradition, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Atlanta, Georgia. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany, where they're about to have a major election there. We also want to thank all of the uh, Pacifica flagship stations and affiliate stations that are carrying a Sojourner Truth. This is Margaret Prescott, um, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, on Saturday, September 18th, the sixth summit of heads of state and government of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, known
known as CELAC, was held in Mexico City. CELAC is a regional bloc of Latin American and Caribbean states established on December 3rd, 2011 in Caracas, Venezuela, under the government of the late President Hugo Chavez. The bloc, which was formed as a counterweight to the U.S., um, to the U.S.-dominated Organization of American States, known as the OAS. The OAS, by the way, plays a very negative uh, role on the ground in Haiti. But CELAC includes 32 sovereign countries in the Americas, but it excludes the United States and Canada. Uh, and they uh, symbolize a long-standing push for deeper integration within Latin America and the Caribbean, as envisioned by independence heroes like Simon uh, Bolivar and Jose Marti. It is also designed to minimize the overwhelming influence of Washington on the political and economic systems of Latin America and the Caribbean. The current president pro tempore of CELAC is Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, uh, better known as AMLO. Uh, meanwhile, at the invitation of AMLO, Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered a video speech at the uh, at the summit. Uh, let us go now to hear a bit of what uh, AMLO, the president of Mexico, had to say. Mexico's president suggested Latin American and Caribbean nations form a bloc similar to the European Union. While at the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States Summit in Mexico City on Saturday, host President Andrés Manuel López Obrador said regional powers should consolidate. It is time to end the lethargy and establish a new and vigorous relationship between the people of America. It seems to me that it is time to replace the policy of blockades and mistreatment with the option of respecting each other, walking together and associating ourselves for the good of America without violating our sovereignty. Leftist leaders in the region gathered at the invitation of López Obrador with the stated aim of weakening the Washington-based Organization of American States. Notably in attendance was Venezuela's Nicolás Maduro, Peru's new president Pedro Castillo, and Cuba's Miguel Díaz-Canel. For years, leaders have expressed concern that the OAS is too close to the United States and have resented its exclusion of Cuba from its member states. López Obrador told more than a dozen leaders that forming a new body could boost the region's unstable economies and empower countries to confront health and other crises. A new CELAC fund was also announced at the summit to respond to natural disasters. All righty, and uh, I'd now like to welcome uh, Laura Carlson, a journalist based in Mexico City, where she comments on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Good to be here. Okay, Laura, I'm hoping to continue this discussion with you uh, tomorrow, actually, at our weekly roundtable. Hopefully, you will be able to, to join us. But uh, meanwhile, just tell us about uh, what you see as some of the most significant things that came out of this year's CELAC conference. Well, first, as you mentioned, this is an attempt to revive uh, CELAC, which played a prominent role at its founding and then was semi-dormant for many years. Now there are more progressive governments in Latin America, and after, with the leadership of the Mexican government with López Obrador, uh, there was a meeting of the ministers, the foreign ministers, 
to prepare this meeting, and then there was this, there was this meeting with uh, the vast majority, 31 of 33 countries represented with, with 20 heads of state. So there was a response uh, to the proposal to unify as Latin American and Caribbean countries without the, president, the presence of the United States. This has always been the point. There is a clearly, in the speech by Lopez Obrador, there's a clear intention to reject U.S. hegemony in the region. And the purpose of it, it says, is a commitment to build a new international order that is fair, more inclusive, equitable, and harmonic, and adheres to no non-intervention in the internal affairs of states. So to fortify that was extremely important. And uh, it was, it was, it's, it's a work in progress. You can't say that it was achieved, and you can't say that it wasn't achieved. I think the success or failure framework for it is difficult. But if you look at the declaration, there's a series of points that really do set out a different point of view regarding um, the positioning of Latin America, not only vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Canada, but also among themselves. And the fact that they were able to get together countries as disparate ideologically as Duque in Colombia and Maduro from Venezuela, who did attend the conference, was an achievement in itself. Right. And uh, Laura Carlson, I mean, it is notable that CELAC, you know, was founded under uh, the late president, uh, Hugo Chavez, who is so maligned uh, continually uh, here in the United States. But um, the tell us, they, they took a position, there's, there was a lot of concern about the role of the OAS, the Organization of American States, which everybody knows is basically controlled by the United States, does the bidding of the United States, for example, in Haiti, <laughs> uh, among, among other things. So tell us the significance of that, because CELAC, um, if they continue to hold it together, can be um, something that is counter to the role that the OAS is, is playing and also the significance of the Chinese President Xi Jinping um, being invited to give a speech to the summit, uh, Laura Carlson. It's, it's very important to mention uh, the, the existence of CELAC within the framework of the Organization of American States under the leadership of Luis Almagro, who has clearly aligned himself with the right-wing governments and U.S. interests in the region. The Mexican president proposed dismantling the OAS, and in fact, some people believe that that would come up specifically as a proposal in this region. But what CELAC has traditionally done, and I think this will be the tax to take, in this case, as the, as the organization is renovated, is become a much more effective, inclusive, and um, oriented towards the needs of, a pe of the people, a place where those kinds of decisions can be made, and that gradually reduces the importance and the relevance of the organization of American states in the region. There's been so much criticism from the time that they designed and then later defended the coup in Bolivia, it's lost a great deal of legitimacy with many governments. And so this effort to create an alternative um, organization for resolving regional differences is important. And I think that the, the presence of the speech of the Chinese 
of, of Xi was, was also significant in the sense that what they're saying is a, a clear rejection of the Monroe Doctrine, which was, again, revived explicitly under the Trump administration and really has not changed as much as certainly many people would like to see in terms of Biden policy. Uh, what they're saying is that we will make our own decisions and we are not the backyard of the United States. And, Margaret, I was listening with great interest to the previous segment, and I think it's important to note that the, the linkages, um, there's a specific point in the CELAC uh, declaration that condemns and laments, it says, the cowardly assassination of the president of Haiti, Juvenil Moise, and, uh, is, uh, and makes a commitment uh, to resolving the situation in Haiti and categorically rejecting the violence and all its expressions uh, and looking for a path toward peace without impunity. I could see a very positive role for CELAC in this with the description of how U.S. intervention has led to the collapse in, and the political crisis, economic crisis, crisis on every level in Haiti now. It's clear that the United States has no role to play in rebuilding the nation or resolving the internal tensions. And so uh, a role for CELAC, obviously, alongside CARICOM, which is the Caribbean Commission, which was uh, also represented in the CELAC grouping and are being talked about as the next uh, president of the organization, could be extremely beneficial. And that's a role that they have played in the past as well. Related to that is the stance on immigration to reject the criminalization, xenophobia, uh, racism in immigration policies. However, that's a tough one, given the fact that the Mexican government has been backing up the U.S. policies and the scenes that we've seen here in Mexico lately in terms of the deportation and the mistreatment of Haitian refugees are uh, very similar, identical really to many of those scenes in the United States. So there's going to have to be a lot of public pressure to make sure that all of these points within a very progressive declaration from CELAC are followed up on and are respected among the government. One of the other very important ones is the unity on the issue of vaccine, access to vaccines, and confronting the pandemic within the region, which has had a tremendous cost in both lives and in economic terms. Uh, they're talking with the help of the Economic Commission on Latin America and the Caribbean. There's a whole plan that would also request and push for liberation of patents and specifically targets the monopoly control and greed of transnational pharmaceutical companies in an effort to create much more public access. So these are all positive directions for the organization, and what is still unclear at this, at this point is the political viability, given nations like Colombia, uh, highly dependent on the United States, and other right-wing uh, leaders such as Uruguay and Paraguay, who came out directly against the presence of Venezuela and Cuba and could be obstructionist on other points of the unified declaration. Right, and we know that um, behind the scenes, the U.S. and um, their people on the OAS working to undermine uh, undermine CELAC. And a lot of other interesting things, uh, Laura Carlson, uh, they talked about um, the... 
uh, Latin America and Caribbean Space Agency um, for and um, the allocation of $15 million for the creation of a regional health regulatory agency to combat uh, COVID, which you mentioned. Um, also, an integrated fund to deal with natural uh, disasters, uh, which would uh, help also to push the uh, International Monetary Fund to, to really come up off of um, what is really owed uh, to these to these countries. And um, Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela um, talked about um, promoting the region's multilateralism, integration and cooperation, but notably absent was uh, Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro, who apparently uh, refused to uh, participate in in this year's uh, CELAC. So, yeah, we were so you happy know, it, that Bolsonaro did yeah. not come because his delegation was declared positive for COVID when he attended the United Nations, and he refused to be vaccinated. He left uh, CELAC in, in 2020 at the bidding, I'm sure, of President Trump complaining about the president, the presence of Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, and, uh, and has not come back. But there are expected to be some pretty major political changes in Brazil in the new future uh, that that uh, could change leadership and reinforce the power of CELAC. Right, and, and Laura Carlson, just in the, the few minutes that we have left, you know, talking with uh, people here in the United States, the, the level of information about the reality of what's really going on uh, south of the border. I mean, the, the propaganda, I'll have to say, um, by put forward by mainstream media, you know, when you look at a, a place like Venezuela, for example, I mean, what country doesn't have problems? Look at the problems in the United States. But I recall being in Venezuela, waiting on a line with mainstream journalists from the United States. This was a press conference uh, President Chavez at the time was going to give. And all of them knew what they were going to say. They knew what the line was, and it seemed to me they sounded like State Department talking points. It didn't matter what President Chavez was going to say. It didn't matter what the situation really was on the ground, but there just was a particular line that had to be told to the U.S. and the international audience about Venezuela. Similarly, uh, the similar thing has gone on in relation to Cuba as well. And it's not to deny that there are problems um, in every country. Look at what's happening in the United States, for example. But as a journalist um, working in the region, um, I wondered your, your thoughts on this, because there's a lot of misinformation floating around about, even about the OAS and the role they play and what's truly uh, going on. Laura Carlson, just a, a couple of minutes, I'm, I'm afraid, for this, but we'll continue this discussion on tomorrow's weekly roundtable, we hope. Will you be able to join us, Laura? Yes, <laughs> we of hope. course. Uh, yes. Of course. Okay, well, right. Especially as a foreign policy analyst for many years in the region, it's extremely frustrating, Margaret, because the analysis is not based on fact. Uh, for, and one of the biggest examples, Venezuela is, of course, an example, and many people don't even know that they're involved in negotiations with the opposition here in Mexico that have actually led to a series of advances re re uh, regarding the upcoming elections. But the classic example, especially on display in the CELAC meeting, was the comparison between 
Cuba and Colombia. On display was the division on Cuba. I just returned from a human rights delegation in Colombia. There are constant attacks on Cuba because of protests that, got, that included about 1,000 people. In Colombia, they've been going on since April 28th with millions of people in the street. In Cuba, there isn't a single death or even scenes of beatings. I dare anyone to find those kinds of scenes, you know, besides possibly some pushing. Um, from those couple days of protests, in Colombia, we took testimonies from students who had lost their eyes from close-range firing by security forces, had been run over by tanks. Um, there are different estimates on the number of deaths, but they're above 80 now many of them, from almost all from security forces or from forces allied, paramilitary forces allied with security forces. So these kinds of contrasts, when you look at actual facts, you know, are completely obscured by the ideological um, manipulation of the mainstream press in the United States. And that's one of the things that makes peaceful resolution of controversies within our region absolutely impossible when they are directed by a United States government, an imperialist government, a neoliberal government that is determined to, to propagate these myths in order to advance its own interests. That's the hope that lies in CELAC, that an alternative space can be created that will deal with problems as they are, as people suffer them, instead of a completely channeled through the powerful interests of economic and political actors in the hemisphere, particularly controlled by the United States government and transnational corporations. Right. Well, on that note, uh, Laura Carlson, we are going to have to leave it there. And uh, we'll speak with you tomorrow on our, our weekly roundtable. Our listeners won't want to miss that. There is so much going on on the industrial uh, tree plantations. We will reschedule uh, that so that you will be able to find out about these industrial tree uh, monocultures. Uh, thank you, Laura Carlson. And thank you to Pierre Laboissier, our guest uh, today. Today's show produced by me. That's my Margaret Prescott, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our sister producer, Ramiro uh, Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Thank you for listening. And you all, please remember to stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.